You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by physicist Eric Copenhaver, finishing up your second year in physics. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Of course, yeah. Thanks for being here, you know, <laughs> as many times as we can say it. No, I'm, I'm excited for today's interview. Uh, you told me I'm in for a ride, so... We'll just start from there. How did you get into physics? Yeah. Um, so I was doing sort of a reflection recently, and uh, that was prompted by some outreach I was doing with some high school students. And I decided I would take the approach of like telling them where I was at their stage uh, in life. And it was nowhere near physics. It wasn't even close. So I was uh, I was trying to be a rock star. I was Aren't playing we all? games. Aren't we all? <laughs> this like, is the right audience for that. Exactly. Yeah. Like, what is life other than just trying to be a rock star? So I was actually like playing gigs on stage. You know, uh, had had a few bands that I was putzing around with in high school. I had super long curly hair, and it's not so short now. It's not so short now, but you're you're seeing it sort of after a. After a period where my fiance was like, oh, yeah, I really miss the hair. You should grow it back out. So <laughs> it's getting a little scraggly right now. It's in an intermediate stage, but we'll see where it takes us. Okay, so, so you were being a rock star. I was being a rock star, yeah. And I and I went to undergrad, and I decided in undergrad, like, I'm continuing to be a rock star. And the best way to do it is to study jazz. So I was studying jazz guitar for my entire freshman year. But kind of on the side, I was doing some leadership things, like in residence life and housing, and decided, you know what? maybe that's a good career path for me because I'm kind of a morning person. And like, if you're doing music, you have to stay up late at night. And, you know, it's kind of uncertain if I would be successful. So I thought, you know, what, like, I'm not sure if I can get a job here. So maybe I want to go to grad school. I don't know for what. But uh, if I can't get a job, then I should study something more practical. So uh, to be more practical, I started studying philosophy. Mm. Great decision, right? Very practical. Yeah. So I started studying philosophy, not really knowing what I wanted to do, and ended up taking physics as a lab science, which is arguably the hardest thing you could take for a general ed requirement. Uh, but I did so, and I just loved it and kept going and thought, maybe I'll do a minor in physics and, and go into environmental science. Uh, but as I got farther and farther in, I just got really hooked by kind of the way and like with how much precision you can describe nature and, and really like bend it to your will. Um, so... Here I am. You really caught me with that last phrase there, you know, as a biologist. So bend it to your will. So what does that mean? What are you, what sorts of things are you guys doing in that lab? Yeah. So if you're a biologist, uh, a lot of times, depending on the field of biology you're in, uh, you don't have much control over your system. So if you want to study flight patterns of birds or something, it's tough to sort of like introduce a perturbation into the system and see how the system responds, you know, like. You can't go in and like take out the magnetic field sensor of a bird and see, do they still migrate? And if so, like how? Although um, I think that there are a couple labs in BLSB that are doing things pretty similar to that. Oh, so, man. I uh, need to listen to the graduates more. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> no. Okay. But continue. Yeah. So. Yeah. So in physics, uh, we understand our systems really, really well and in large part due to their simplicity. Um, so a bird is a really complex organism and... The migratory patterns are not so simple either, but I study atoms and the physics of atoms. And an atom is a really well understood quantity. Like quantitatively, we can we can say very precise things about atoms, and we we know how they interact with light, for instance. 
and with gravity, for instance. Um, and refresh us, all us non-physicists, what is an atom? Just so we know what we're talking about. Yeah, so an atom is, is this stable construction of a tiny nucleus in which you pack these protons and neutrons, and you've got electrons sort of orbiting in these clouds outside. Uh, and atoms underlie everything. So you are made of a bunch of cells. Uh, people are pretty familiar with biological cells, and each one of your cells is made of a ton of atoms. So each, each of the molecules is just some construction of atoms. But when you put all those atoms together, they start interacting in really complex ways, and uh, the simplicity and the beauty of an atom is sort of in an isolated atom, which is kind of what we study. And so, if I'm remembering correctly, this is what we sort of call the smallest unit of measurable quantity, or am yeah. I wrong with that? Well, you could tell me if I'm wrong. It's so, okay. So the word atom is derived from ancient Greek, and uh, in Greece they sort of had this idea of this uncuttable unit, and that's where the word atom comes from. So inherently in the word, it sort of suggests that it's uncuttable, but I've just given you a description of atom where it's composed of parts, right? It's composed of protons, and it's composed of neutrons and electrons, and these are three different parts, and even those you can cut up. Uh, so... As far as physicists understand, the electron is not cuttable, but the protons and neutrons are made of quarks and gluons. So those things, as far as we understand now, are not cuttable, unless you ask a string theorist, in which case I think they tell you that they're strings. <laughs> so quarks and gluons, that's, that's not coming from ancient Greek. That's definitely not coming from ancient Greek. Um, the word quark comes from uh, a Scottish poem or something like that. Um, it's, it's a cheese or something <laughs> so sure. new more uh recent discoveries obviously getting more contemporary exactly. style names okay yeah. very cool okay so we're all made of atoms which is kind of crazy because there's so much variety and you're telling me that just different configurations of like protons and electrons and neutrons is going to make all the variety we see exactly um, it's kind of the richness of language uh so we have at least in english we have this 26 letter alphabet and out of it, you can compose all these words. So we have this huge variety of words. And now you can start playing artistic tricks with how you put the words together. Um, so the words are sort of like molecules and the letters are atoms. And, and you know, maybe a, a poem is like a human being. Okay. Sure. Yeah. And so this is both animate and inanimate objects. So basically, like everything is sort of connected through this at this atomic level. Yeah, exactly. And sort of, I guess the, the difference between regular stuff and stuff that's alive has to do with sort of self-replication. So things that are alive try to persist. You know, they try to keep living and uh, they do so in, in some specific ways. And like in particular, like carbon atoms underlie all of life. Uh, so if something doesn't have any carbon in it, as far as we understand life now, we wouldn't call it alive. But there are other components to that definition. Yeah. Now we're getting into tricky biology territory, so we should probably uh, stop there because I can't. I don't know enough to to make any arguments about what al what's alive and what's not. But I know it's tricky. Um, <laughs> okay. But getting back to physics, so yeah. you had this crazy undergrad. Obviously, you're interested in lots of different things, and and it took you to physics. Mm -hmm. And so now you're here at Berkeley. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do with these different atoms? Yeah. So. Um, in my lab, we do this thing called atom interferometry. Uh, so let me describe interferometry a little bit. Kind of the first place to start is with light interferometry. 
So um, we physicists know and we try to tell other people that light is a wave, in fact. And what you can do with those waves is you, if you split it along two different paths, you can recombine it at some other time and see how the waves interfere. So um, an example of wave interference is if you were to drop two pebbles in a pond, then these sort of like circular waves are emitted outwards. And then when those waves meet each other, they interfere in some way and create some pattern. Um, now the light waves will do something similar. And if you split it along two paths, then you can look at the interference and detect tiny changes in the difference in length between those two paths. Now with atoms, it turns out quantum mechanics tells us that they're also waves. Uh, and you can also interfere atoms just like you interfere light waves. But atoms have an advantage over light for certain applications in that they feel gravity. Uh, so light is massless and it doesn't feel gravity. But with our atoms, we can detect tiny changes in gravity. We can detect all sorts of neat things about gravity. So my, my particular experiment works with lithium atoms. So um, lithium atoms come in two forms, mainly. Um, one of those forms has four neutrons in the nucleus. We call that lithium-7. And one has three neutrons in the nucleus, call it lithium-6. But the main difference for us is that they have a little bit different of a weight. So if you were to drop them, then lithium-7 would have a larger mass. Lithium-6 has a smaller mass. And regular old Newtonian physics tells us that they should accelerate at the same rate. Um, so if you drop a bowling ball and a feather without air, if you go into a vacuum chamber, they'll, they'll hit the ground at the same time. Um, and we're asking the question, do lithium-6 and lithium-7 hit at the same time? Now, that's an interesting question because uh, sort of like the standard model of particle physics isn't fully descriptive of nature, and we know we need to reform it somehow. So one way to extend the standard model suggests that lithium-6 and lithium-7, the bowling ball and the feather, actually might not fall at the same rate. Interesting. Okay. I need to, I need to like take this all in. I'm sure other people do too. Wait, okay. So you think they might not fall at the same rate because they're different masses? Sort of. It has to do with some detailed differences with how the nuclei are structured. But in the end, the observable is that lithium-6 and lithium-7 do not both fall at 9.8 meters per second squared, which is the acceleration here towards Earth's surface. But the bowling ball and the feather fall at the same rate. That's a great point. So if you go into a vacuum chamber and you drop a bowling ball and a feather, there's no air drag, so the feather doesn't get pushed back by the air particles. They seem to hit at the same time, right? But if you were to zoom in in time, the question is, do they really hit at the same time? Is it really true that they experience the same gravitational acceleration? And in order to answer that question, you can't just look with your eyes. You have to measure very, very precisely whether or not they hit at the same time. So if you want to measure that very precisely, you need to measure time very precisely, and you need to measure when they hit very precisely. And this is sort of the whole goal of precision measurement. So a long time ago, uh, people needed to standardize train schedules. And in order to standardize train schedules, they needed to standardize clocks and make sure that they ran at the same rate, hit the same hours at the same times. So we needed a more precise way of measuring time than looking overhead and seeing that the sun was directly above us. Now we have even greater technological demands. Uh, for instance, GPS requires really precise clocks. And 
precision measurement is a way for us to detect tiny, tiny changes and not only inform technological applications, but also to probe some really fundamental physics. If you're just tuning in, you're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson. Today I'm joined by physicist Eric Copenhaver. Uh, yes, Department of Physics telling us about precision measurements and atoms and sort of gravity acting on them and, and other things, because you said gravity does act on them. So how do you go about measuring such tiny, tiny things? You must have fancy equipment. We, we do have some fancy equipment, but the reason that I really love atomic physics is the following. If you look at other fundamental physics experiments, like the Large Hadron Colliders at CERN over in Switzerland, it's this huge, I don't know, 16 or 17 kilometer ring. I, I always forget the length, but uh, they're accelerating protons and smashing them together. And it's this huge international collaboration, costs a bunch of money. But we as atomic physicists can do really precise measurements on the top of a table. So we do have some fancy equipment in that we've got a vacuum chamber and we've got a bunch of lasers to address the atoms, which are very particular about what light you send to them, and different devices for shifting the laser frequencies around. Um, but ultimately, it's a pretty simple experiment in comparison to some larger collaborations. Where do you even get lithium ions or lithium atoms? You can order them online. <laughs> what do they <laughs> so come in? What I <laughs> they come in? They come in like a can, and uh, lithium lithium's a metal, so it comes in metallic form, but Unfortunately, it reacts really readily with water vapor in the air, and it forms this thing called lithium hydride, I think. It's either lithium hydride or lithium hydroxide. But in order to get pure lithium, which is the only thing we want in our vacuum chamber, we've got to bake out all that stuff. And there's sort of this pre-baking procedure that we have to do before we put it into the vacuum chamber. So you get like a can of lithium, and then you like put it in the oven, make some... Exactly. Some dinner, pure lithium, exactly. stick in the vacuum. It's a very house, house metaphoric here. Uh, we even call it an oven. And we even, <laughs> I was just we, joking, but we bake our vacuum chamber. Wow. Yeah, okay. For sure, we're just playing house, really. Yeah. No, that's pretty interesting. Okay, so it has to be in a vacuum chamber for you to answer these questions without weird interference, or is it also to limit what else gets in with your lithium? Yeah. So it's it's mostly it's mostly the weird interference that you're talking about. So what we do is we trap. A cold cloud of lithium atoms. It's you know minus two hundred seventy three Celsius. It's uh, not the coldest temperature on Earth, but it's three hundred microkelvin for those that are familiar. Uh, so we trap this cloud of lithium atoms using some tricks with uh, magnetic and and optical fields, and from there they have to be cold so that so that they have sort of like a coherent wave property. And if you had all sorts of water vapor or oxygen molecules flying around your vacuum chamber, then it would limit the length over which that wave would still be a wave, or at least the wave that you're trying to look at. Okay, so you mentioned that there's a, like a lot of different applications for this. Can you translate this crazy small laser, like cloud, frozen cloud science into something that we understand is applicable to our lives? <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah, so like I said, it's really sensitive to gravity. So one application is, you know, searching for oil. Uh, this is this is an application that people have used other measuring devices for gravity to accomplish. But if you're hovering your device over oil that's below the surface of Earth, then the gravity changes there because oil is a different density from the surrounding rock of Earth's crust. 
and you can sort of extend that notion to other applications. Like, for instance, in Israel, there are these smuggling tunnels. And you could imagine if you, if you had something that measured gravity really precisely, every time you passed over one of those smuggling tunnels, the gravity would drop a little bit because there's like this little column where there isn't any rock to attract gravitationally. So that is one application of this kind of atom interferometry for measuring gravity. And in our lab, we're actually trying to build a small mobile interferometer to measure just those kinds of things. So you said before it would fit on a tabletop. That seems small to me in terms of physics, but you want to go even smaller. Definitely. We, we have to go smaller and we have to go cheaper. So we want to fit it in a shoebox for 10000 bucks. That's kind of the end goal. Um, and if you can do that, then you can search for these underground tunnels in Israel. And you can also measure accelerations and rotations really well. Uh, and that would help us get towards inertial navigation, which is basically the alternative to GPS. So in GPS, you've got to send signals out to satellites. You've got to wait for them to bounce back. Maybe someone intercepts the signal and knows where you are, unfortunately. So if you want to sort of covertly navigate yourself around the world's oceans or something, then you need this onboard interferometer to measure all your accelerations and, and positions. So you talk about searching for oil, covertly navigating through foreign seas. Should I be worried here? Or are you a pirate? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Anything's At least not on this radio show. (laughs) Fair enough. We'll save that for the pirate radio. We know it's out there. Okay. So we've talked about all these applications. And you were saying when looking for these tunnels, gravity changes. I guess that... That's something I'd like you to tell me more about because, you know, I'm sort of a noob. And so I just sort of think of gravity as being one thing that acts, you know, around the earth. Can you you (laughs) explain it to me more? This is like a a free class for me, so I'll take it. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it it depends on who you ask what gravity is. If, If you go back a couple centuries ago, Newton would have said, you know, it's two masses attracting each other. And the distance between the masses matters. So if you go farther away, then you feel less gravitational attraction. But uh, you always have some attraction between two masses. So you could imagine, like, if a smuggler wants to bore out a tunnel underneath some rock, then there's a bunch of mass that's now not there anymore. So there's less mass to attract your, your little gravity sensor. So you measure less gravity because there's less stuff underneath you to be attracted to. So it's like localized gravity because obviously we're not just like reducing the the gravity of the Earth because we keep all the mass on Earth. We just move it somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. So there's whenever you you bore out a tunnel, then like you've got to take that rock that you bore out. You've got to stash it somewhere. So there's probably some pile of rock that (laughs) that's higher gravity. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool, cool. Um, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, you also mentioned in the beginning that you, you're interested in outreach. I mean, I saw that you've done a lot of different types of outreach. You want to tell us about any of those projects? Yeah, there's, there's one main project that I, that I work with. Um, and most of my efforts are sort of centered around that. And, uh, that's called Eigenspectrum. So Eigenspectrum, uh, is a, it's a pun for the physicists and mathematicians out there, but we sort of use it to mean iGen spectrum, which is the identity and gender spectrum. And uh, the effort of Eigenspectrum is really to show LGBT high schoolers and undergrads that science is a really viable career path for them and that they have a home there and a supportive community. Uh, and we actually are the first the first such student organization in the nation. Wow. So there are other 
other LGBT-oriented groups for STEM fields, but definitely none for physics in particular that we know of. Uh, so if you're listening and, and you know, please send us an email. So is there this, uh, is there this idea that why do LGBT people feel like maybe physics isn't for them? Is there a stereotype around that? Or So we don't have any great data on LGBT in physics in particular, but we do have data on LGBT in academia and in science. And there's sort of this weird dichotomy in academia where people want LGBT to feel encouraged, you know, to sort of talk about their lives uh, and to be out and open about who they are, but they don't really want to talk about it. And there's a contradiction there. Um, and that kind of contradiction discourages people from having a healthy relationship at work. I've definitely seen some of those surveys out there saying that Berkeley graduate students in particular don't necessarily have a healthy relationship with their work. So I guess it's uh, yeah. more important. I think, yeah, I think you find, I think you find that dissatisfaction uh, across graduate departments. Uh, luckily, I'm a pretty happy graduate student. I have a really great advisor and uh, really great coworkers and a fun place to work. So. so is the program run mostly by graduate students or are there undergraduates involved or is it just volunteer, like community volunteers? How does how does that work? Yeah, so our lab has a few undergraduates working in it, especially for the summer. Um, the undergrads here are going through the rigors of Berkeley undergrad physics, which is pretty hard. But uh, during the summer, they look for research opportunities. And I think we have three undergrads in the group for the summer. And we also have a high school student. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. I was actually talking about the Eigen spectrum or, yeah, Eigen spectrum, Eigen spectrum. How do you pronounce it? We, <laughs> you we go call both it, ways? We call it Eigen spectrum, but yeah, we swing both ways. But now you, good one. But now <laughs> uh, you caught my interest with this high schooler in your in your lab. So, yeah. so I didn't know that, first of all, I didn't know that high schoolers were interested in research or physics or going to school extra. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't know that there was any encouragement for that either. Yeah, um, it's sort of a unique scenario. So our high schooler goes to, I think it's called Head Royce. It's some upscale high school in Oakland. And their private high school offers this program for seniors in the last month of their high school careers. And it's sort of an open-ended, I think, quote-unquote, internship program. So they go out and select some project to work on for, for a month. And uh, he approached us about coming in and working in the lab and there are all sorts of cool things that you can do even as a high schooler in an atomic physics lab so he's actually going to build a device for us to split some light six different ways which is how we trap our atoms very cool so do you have other do you have other advice for students who might be interested not necessarily high schoolers but just anyone who's interested and in, in the earlier stages of research or their or their science career yeah i think i think that you have to get out there and do some research. Uh, it's really pretty critical. Um, so I was doing research while taking classes during the year, and I was also traveling to different universities over the summer during undergrad to do research. So I spent some time at Vanderbilt, and I spent some time at University of Michigan over the summers. So seeking out those research opportunities are really, really important. And in order to do that, you've got to you've got to get into contact with some people. So you've got to email professors and especially if you're emailing professors at a really good institution, uh, your rate for response is going to be pretty low. So I might even suggest that you email grad students. So if you go to a, a group's website, 
if you just Google Google a website and go to usually there's a people link and they've got emails so just pick one pick a pick an email for a grad student email them and see what comes back because um, grad students are are often really interested in helping people get into science so they might be able to pull some extra strings with their professor if you're particularly interested why are you interested in outreach i mean you're talking yeah. about eigen spectrum are you one of the leaders of i Eigenspectrum? Yeah, I was actually one of the few founding members. So we, we just started about a year and a half ago. We celebrated our, our one-year birthday uh, this last semester. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I, I did found Eigenspectrum, and I did some outreach in undergrad. Uh, and outreach is really important to me because I think that science offers humanity kind of a way to interact with the world that we've never had before. However... Uh, science is like really misunderstood still. And I think that that's in large part due to a failure of scientists to communicate well. Um, so I want to sort of bring science to the masses in a way that the science can be consumed and the public can sort of get on board and get behind us with their tax dollars and with their interest in, in you know, popular science shows. So outreach to me is a way of engendering a scientific community across the world and, I guess, keeping scientists going. And how do you do it? I mean, can we just, like, talk about science on this radio show and hope that people listen and pay attention? Or, I mean, you must have more, uh, you know, hands-on ways of, of outreach. Exactly. So it's, it's obviously not enough to just talk on this radio show because not everyone listens to the radio show. And it's not enough to they just... Should. They should. They should. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that yet. I should, yeah, yeah, I should yet. qualify. Okay. Yet they sorry. don't listen. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but not everyone watches the Science Channel. Not everyone even has the Science Channel. Not everyone has cable. Not everyone has the internet. Um, so you sort of have to get out there and, and really demand the attention of people. Uh, and usually people are really interested. So we had uh, a crew of high schoolers come in a couple weeks ago, and we did some demos with them and talked about you know, kind of the underlying science of the demos and also the underlying science behind the research that we do as grad students. And that effort is really to get people interested and at the very least to just show them that the method of science works and the things that we know from science are valid and we know them for a reason. And you get to play with lasers. And we get to play with lasers. And who doesn't want to play with lasers, right? I think most people want to play with lasers, especially cats. Especially uh, cats, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're sort of winding down on our time here in the graduates. Do you have any last words for the audience, anything you definitely want to say? Get out there and do some science. Yeah, get out there and do some science. And do you want to – let's let's give out the e or the website link for your foundation, your organization, Eigen Spectrum. Yeah, so it's eigenspectrum.berkeley.edu, and uh, that's – I-G-E-N-S-P-E-C-T-R-U-M <laughs> dot B-E-R. No, I'm just kidding. Yes. Berkeley dot E-D-U. Uh, so that's our website, and uh, you can find all sorts of cool info on there. Awesome. Yeah, and do some do some science. Do some physics. Hey, my name's Tesla. You know, this is might be as close as I get to physics, but 
uh, thank you for helping me, helping me get there. Yeah, thanks <laughs> Put a lot some physics into my name. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, get you on board. Yeah, thank you, Eric. Uh, okay, so this has been another episode of The Graduates here on KLX Berkeley, 90.7 FM, University of California, and listener-supported radio. My name is Tesla Munson. Today I've had the pleasure of being joined by physicist Eric Copenhaver. Uh, just finished his second year in physics, got lot, got a lot more to do, I'm sure, all in atomic physics physics or cold atomic physics sure yeah with the precise measurements and exactly and we learned what gravity is and uh yeah and pretty much what lithium is and how to how it comes in a can i thought that was pretty cool and <laughs> we've learned many more things eric i just can't say them all again or it would be a whole nother program you can't forget about the baking adventures right yes the baking adventures yes. because all scientists work in a kitchen ultimately <laughs> And that's why they wear lab coat. It's just a, a fancy apron, really. Exactly. Okay. Um, well, yeah, thank you again. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of The Graduates. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX, Berkeley.